I'm not sure how this prayer thing works, uh, but I'm here. You know, this morning, a little chaos, a little problem here and there, a little problem with sound and lighting and video and uh, a lot of obstacles. And let me just tell you that people have worked on this. It has nothing to do with the competency or their performance. It has to do with a computer that decides to update at the inopportune times. So, computers, where did they come from? I'm not sure. You know, we're continuing with a summer series out of 1 Timothy, and I've enjoyed it. I hope somebody else has, because I've enjoyed the time in 1 Timothy. And this morning, we've come to chapter 2, the first seven verses. This is the third in our series on 1 Timothy. Uh, Next week, we're going to do the end of chapter 2, and then we come to Father's Day, and you get a pleasant break, and Derek is going to speak on Father's Day, on a Father's Day theme. And then we're coming back for chapter 3, and Steve will be working through chapter 3. So, uh, I'll be with you today, and then you'll have a break for a couple weeks. Somebody say amen? Anybody? Okay, thank you. Two weeks ago we started, and we, we talked about the church. It's not about the building. That was the series title, because when you read through 1 Timothy, there's nothing about a building. It's just not there. But it is about right teaching, right doctrine, right belief, a body of belief. And then the second week, we came back and we talked about the church being about changed lives, transformed lives. And I tried to build a link between right teaching or right doctrine, right body of belief, and changed lives. Because without right teaching, you're never going to have changed lives, right? Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ from Scripture that changes lives, and nothing more, nothing less. We are messengers of that gospel. You know, this week, Myrna and I sat down, as we often do, late evening, and we turned on the TV, and obviously that night there was no ball game on I wanted to watch, so we went to Netflix. And uh, we were surfing through Netflix, and we came across a, uh, a, a video that was a biographical drama. In other words, it's, it's essentially true, but dramatized, and how much of it becomes true, who knows then. But it was about a guy named Carlton Pearson. Is that name familiar to you? Some of you? Carlton Pearson. You know where he was from, don't you, Dee? He was from Tulsa. Did you really? Okay. Carlton Pearson was a very uh, charismatic, is the right word in every sense, pastor from Tulsa. And he had a church of about 6,000. At one time, I think 6,000 plus. He was very musical. He was one of those guys that could be speaking and break into song. I could only wish I could do that. If I broke into song, I'd empty the sanctuary quickly. So I won't do that. But, but he could do that. He could just break into song and go back to preaching. And, but he, he had a, a, a real gift in front of people. But Carlton Pearson, in his, uh, the course of his ministry, came to a point where he could no longer understand what I think are the essential Bible doctrines. And that is that Christ came to save sinners. That is the essence of the gospel. And boy, wrapped up in that, there are all kinds of things. And Carlton lost track of that. 
And I think through his own reasoning, through his own thought processes, he decided, without any outside authority except his own brain, he decided that all men were saved by the blood of Christ, with or without belief. Had nothing to do. This is what he decided. This is not a distortion of, of his teaching. And he, had a, uh, he formulated a system of doctrine that he called universal reconciliation. So that in the death of Christ, all men, whether Buddhists or Hindus or uh, adherents to Islam or whatever, or atheists, atheists were okay too, that they were all saved. And, and he lost his moorings. He lost the essence of the gospel. And consequently, he went in a different direction. He moved to Chicago and became a Unitarian Universalist. If you know anything about Unitarian Universalists, uh, you don't really have to believe anything. Uh, you, can, you can believe about anything you like and still be Unitarian Universalist. And you know, when I, when I watched that movie, it really troubled me. It troubled me because... His foundation for his body of faith, if it was faith at all, became his own thinking, his own mind, and his own heart. And he ceased to have any external authority for his faith. I have an external authority for my faith. Yes, I have the witness of the Holy Spirit within. But I also have a book that tells me about Jesus and I believe that it is the true account of the Lord Jesus, why he came and what he did. And I believe that book is the Bible, God's revelation of his will for us and, and everything that we should know about him. It's his revelation to mankind. Well, uh, the, the doctrine that he taught, in my mind, made a mockery of the cross. The cross is the greatest statement of the love of God that we could ever imagine. When you're really blue and really depressed, think about the cross. God so loved the world that he gave, right? Think about that cross, and and it'll help you. And when you're beginning to wonder about this whole gospel thing, think of the depths of the problem of sin. Because the cross points to two things. It points to the severity of our circumstance, that we're lost without Jesus. And it also points to the love of God, right? It points to both things. And Carlton Pearson lost sight of that. And he even told at one point, and I, whether this was something he actually said, he told a, a young man who was really in an aberrant lifestyle, he said, just keep doing what you're doing, you're okay. And I understand that salvation is not about works. But would you ever say to somebody, just keep doing what you're doing and you're okay? Well, that was his comment. You're okay. I'm okay, you're okay. And so this, the, the teaching on right doctrine is important. In fact, just one verse, and, and I'm sure Carlton Pearson knew this verse, but out of 1 Timothy 4, we'll be there in a few weeks. He said... Uh, in 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we uh, toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. Now listen, who is the Savior of all people. Wow, that sounds like something he would teach. 
But it goes on to say, especially, in particular, those who believe. And so, yes, the, the blood of Christ shed was adequate for all people of all time to be, to be uh, released from their sin and forgiven for their sin and reconciled to God. It was adequate. But the fact is, it's, it's only applicable to those who believe, to those who have faith, who trust him. And so it, it, he read the first half of the verse, but apparently didn't read the, the, the last half. And this morning, as we started on this third series in chapter 2, what I see is really another really important word from the Lord. And that is that the church is all about prayer. Oh, no, not prayer. Is there anyone else here who every time they hear the word of prayer, they just kind of feel guilty? You know, prayer. Boy, what a battle. What a battleground, prayer. Uh, I hope I'm not the only one that struggles with prayer life. Well, there's some things here for us to learn about prayer. And I think that it's interesting to me that the three areas that he's covered so far in, in uh, this letter to, to Timothy, the young pastor, were first of all right teaching, which is the core of all of it. And then secondly, change live which is the result of right teaching. And then thirdly is prayer. And what three areas do churches often have problems with in our world and always have? Right teaching, change lives, and prayer. And so he's just moving right through some of the real essentials of the Christian church. And he's telling this young pastor, uh, young church leader, how to make the church right. You know, prayer... Just a couple footnotes about prayer as we get started. I think prayer, one of the reasons that it's tough for us is that prayer reminds us of our dependence on the Lord. I think by nature we'd prefer to be independent. And when we pray, it reminds us how dependent we are on Him. This morning as they were singing, and I'm sitting in the back as I often do, and I always take a minute... And I, I just have to quiet myself and try to get, pull myself aside from everything around. And I have to acknowledge to the Lord, Lord, if anything's going to get done this morning, it's going to be you. I'm dependent on you, and so are all of us dependent on him. But we're dependent on him for everything in life. And when we pray, it, it just kind of reminds us of how dependent we are. Prayer helps to align our thoughts and our hearts to his thought and his heart. And, and we, we find ourselves coming into oneness with him as we spend time and pray. Uh, it reminds us of who he is. Uh, this is God we're talking to. And I think when we pray, it, there needs to be an acknowledgement. I'm not talking to my best buddy. I'm not talking to Dave or Marty. I'm talking to the Lord. And I'm talking to the only wise God. And I'm, th this is a prayer, a request, a praise that's coming before the only God. I think prayer helps us just kind of bring that back into our mind. And then lastly, and I, I, I used this theme a few weeks ago in a men's group, but, and that is prayers like calling home. You know, our citizenship is in heaven. And one of these days, all of those who are in Christ are going to be there. Great thought. 
And when we pray, we are simply just calling out to our homeland and calling out to the master of that homeland, our Lord. And so prayer is like calling home. Well, Timothy, in, in this section, he has a lot more to say about prayer. I'm going to read it and pray in just a second. Seems like we ought to pray if we're talking about prayer. But let me just give a preface again that this is not a summary or a treatise of everything there is to know about prayer. Uh, I wouldn't try to formulate a systematic theology of prayer from this section. That's not why it was given. This was given to a young man who's going in to lead churches and to lead church leaders. And it was about to, to teach him the need for prayer, the importance of prayer, and then the breadth of prayer, of praying for all men at all times. And so don't try to say this is a total teaching on prayer of Scripture, because it isn't. But it does teach us about the importance of prayer, and then the, the breadth of what we should pray for. It gives us a sense of that. Before we read uh, just the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 2, why don't we pray? Lord, we confess to you this morning that we don't always understand prayer. You know our plight. You know our circumstances. You know our need. And you know the needs of our friends, our neighbors. And yet you've told us to pray. And Lord, we know that as we pray that we are aligned with you and we understand your ways better. And that's what we want to do. And Lord, we also know that you are moved by the desires of our heart. And while we can't understand all of that, we believe it. We know, Lord, that prayer can move mountains. Prayer can change things. And we want to be a people of prayer. We want to grow in prayer. And Lord, as we spend these moments talking about it this morning, would you encourage us to be people of prayer? And Lord, would you help us as we're thinking and as we read through this text to begin to identify people who do not know you. We're going to learn that Christ is the only mediator and that all men need to come to you through him. And so Lord, as we read and talk, would you help us to identify people in our life that we should be praying for? And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. First Timothy 2, the first seven verses. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we could lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
Well, the first obvious thing out of that is that there's an exhortation to pray. And notice he says, first of all, of primary importance, pray. And so I think that's a word for us this morning, is that prayer is important. Whether we always acknowledge it or understand it, prayer is an important part of our life. Then he uses the word, I urge, or in some translations it'll say exhort. You know, that's a strong word. Uh, to, to exhort someone means that you're urging them to a course of action. Any of you ever watched the movie Remember the Titans? Surely you've seen that, right? You know, there's a scene in that movie, you guys should remember this, where uh, one of the larger linemen, he puts him down on the field and all fours, and then he puts another guy, um, a running back or someone, on, the, on his back. And he blindfolds him, and he said, uh, go 10 yards, I think is how he said it. And so they, here's this guy. Do you remember the scene? He's going along and, and, you know, really hard with somebody on your back to crawl on all fours 10 yards. And the man can't see, the young man can't see how far he's gone. And he's beginning to struggle and, and perspire and, you know, this, the, the, how, and, the, and the coach is right beside him saying, 10 more, 10 more steps, 10 more steps. And then the coach gets him about 10 more steps and then he begins to exhort him, and he says, ten more steps, ten more steps, and when it finishes, he's gone the whole length of the field with that kid on his back. Now, I don't know if there's any truth in that at all, but if you want a picture of exhortation, that's exhortation. That's what exhorting is. And when the apostle says, I exhort you to pray, that's the kind of word that he's using. He's saying, this is really important. you get the sense of that? It's important. Uh, ten more steps. And, and there's a lot of parallels there in that little story to me. Uh, and, and the Lord is urging us to pray. First of all, I urge you. And then he's got four words there. Supplications, prayers, intercession, and the last one, thanksgiving. That one's easy. The other three words are not real easy to define, but it's worthy of taking just a minute. A supplication is simply a request. It can be for our need or somebody else's. It's coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, we need you, and we need your intervention. And that's the idea of supplication. You may have a marginal reading. You may have a study Bible. It, it may give you a little different, but... As I read and study the word, that's my understanding of it. And then the second word is prayers. And, and the idea of prayers is the focus on the person. When we pray, who are we praying to? And, and I think that when we, the idea of praying is the idea we're focusing on the one who can answer prayers and acknowledging his ability. Does that make sense? We're acknowledging who he is. And his ability. So our attention, our energies, our mental energies are turned to him and acknowledging that he is God and that he can respond to our prayer. And then intercessions, I think that's a little easier word. We use that. That means that I pray or you pray on behalf of someone else. And that we're praying and interceding and asking God for help. That can be all kinds of help. All kinds of help. This morning... 
Um, where's Derek? He may be next door. Derek's dad is going through a really tough time. Derek's father is a young man to have the kind of issues, the health issues that he's had. I think he's 58, if I remember right. I don't see any of the family here to tell me that, but I think he's 58. And he has had strokes and heart trouble, and he's, he's got some genetic uh, problems with heart. And he's really discouraged. A 58-year-old that just doesn't know where it goes next. And Derek said, pray for my dad. And we were on our way in here, and we didn't take time to do that. But that's intercession. Now, intercession can take all kinds of forms. It can be for someone to come to faith for salvation. But it also can be for someone who has a health issue. That's intercession. And, you know, I think it's good for us just to take a minute and pray for Derek's dad. His name's Phil, Phil Smith. Can we do that? Just pause for a minute. God, I know that Phil needs physical healing. I know that you're the great physician and that you can. But I also know that Phil needs to know your presence. And Lord, even as we're praying together as a body this morning, would you just flood his room with your presence? I pray that your spirit would overcome him this morning in the, in the sense of your care and your concern for him and your love for him. And Lord, we commit him to you. Lord, would you help Phil this morning? We trust you. We believe in your good and perfect will. And we commit him to you because you are a loving Heavenly Father. And we commit him in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Intercessions, praying for others. And then notice that last word, thanksgiving. Boy, one of the great indicators of a falling away is ceasing to be thankful. Got anything to be thankful for this morning? Anybody? I bet Emily has something to be thankful for. You graduated, right? You're done. And uh, Stephen has something to be thankful for. And Morgan has something. But there's lots more than that, isn't there? Give me five things. Five things you're thankful for this morning. Real quick. What would you say? I heard rest. Did I say? Okay. Okay. Family. Okay. Two more. I'm sorry. Our church. What did I hear back here? Grass. I like, except when I have to mow it. I don't like it so well then. All right. One more. I, I think I missed a couple, but. What did you say? We're alive. For life itself. Yeah. Uh, I think I heard creation out there somewhere. Isn't creation beautiful this time of year? Wow. The flowers and the greenery. and it, the, the green is almost surreal when you drive down the road compared to what we, we saw just six weeks ago. And, and we, thankfulness should be part of the Christian's life. Thankfulness. But we also ought to be giving thanks for people. And I think that's the focus of this. Thanking the Lord for people. How long has it been since you thanked the Lord for your friends? 
and just stop to remember them. Well, Thanksgiving, important part of it. Pray with Thanksgiving, he says. Signs we're growing cold is when we cease to be thankful. You know, Paul practiced what he preached. Uh, Romans 1, he said, I thank God for you, for your faith, and I make mention of you without ceasing. He said in Ephesians 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you and to ask the Lord to give you wisdom that comes from knowing him. Philippians 1, I thank my God every time I think of you because of your partnership in the gospel. Myrna and I had a, a dear friend and a pastor who was important to us in our early married life. His name was B.F. Kate. None of you would have a way of knowing him, I don't think, but Brother Kate's been gone for a long time. But I remember uh, Pastor Kate telling me on a number of occasions that he prayed for me every day. And you know, when, when he passed, uh, went home, I felt a, an acute loss that I don't have that guy praying for me every day. But if you ever had anybody say, I pray for you all the time, or I pray for you every day, another young friend of ours, Dave Maves, who was in our church, our first church down in southern Ohio, anytime I communicate with Dave, Dave will say, I pray for you every day. Wow. Uh, it, it just Isn't that encouraging to think that somebody pray for you every day? And so think about that and think about how you can encourage somebody else. And if you say, I'm going to pray for you, pray for them. Now, if you, don't, don't say every day unless you mean it, but pray for them. Pray for them often and then let them know you're praying for them. Pray for all people all the time, for all circumstances, prayer. Then why do we pray? Maybe it could be asked, what do we pray for? But I think it's broader than that. Why do we pray? Notice in verse 2, he says that uh, we pray for kings and all who are in high positions. So what, what do we pray for? Kings and all that are in high positions. Now, before I talk about people in high positions, remember who was in a high position when this was written. It was Nero. Really nice guy, easy to pray for, right? What a sweetheart of a fellow he was. Uh, Nero was a rascal. And when uh, the city burned, who did Nero blame the burning on? He blamed it on the Christians, right? And, and he wanted to wipe out the Christian community. Wasn't such a sweetheart. And so when, when Paul's writing to Timothy to pray for all men, who's he saying pray for? For people in high places. He didn't mention him, but he had in mind Nero. Pray for Nero. How many of you would be anxious to pray for Nero? I'm sure I know how you'd pray. <laughs> and it wouldn't be good, would it? You know... I think I've been as disappointed in the Christian community over the way we have spoken about and disrespected our country's leaders over the last 10 years as at any time. You know, Christians have just not done right. I know that Obama had a lot of policies that we didn't like. Right? I mean, he did. But what should have been our attitude toward Barack Obama? What should have been our attitude? 
to pray for them. That should have been our attitude. And some of the things, you know, I, I read Facebook about this much. And some of the things I saw Christians say on Facebook, Christians, of all people, were deplorable. They were despicable. Should never be said. Uh, we don't have to agree with the man's policies, but our, right here, he says, pray for those who are in authority. And I don't know what you think about Donald Trump. Sometimes he drives me crazy. I wish he'd just not say the things he says. But, but what's my job? You know, I, occasionally I'll flash through the news channels. Don't do that. You want to get really discouraged, just look at the news. And so I'll go through the liberal news, and I'll go through the conservative news, and none of it's news. It's all commentary. But, and and I, I come to this thing about Donald Trump. And on the one hand, they want to crucify him today, and he couldn't do anything right if he hung himself with a new rope. There's nothing he could do. And on the other hand, there's nothing he can do wrong. Right? It's crazy. The Lord says, pray for these people. And what are we praying first and most? We're going to see that in just a second. But we're to pray for those who are in authority, even if we don't like them. Even if we don't like their policy, we're to pray. In uh, the, the next section, he says, pray that we have a peaceful and quiet life. And what's that about? What is that about? Peaceful is from internally. Pray that we as a body and Christ church has a peaceful life together. That we can, that we can live harmoniously uh, centered around the lordship of Christ. And we need to pray for that. We need to pray for peace within. But then he says uh, a quiet life. And I think he's talking there about from the outside. He's talking about persecution and that we would be free from persecution. The Church of Christ today is experiencing persecution at unparalleled levels around the world. We just don't hear about it. We may. We may hear more, but we're not hearing it now. But if you go to Southeast Asia, the church is suffering. If you go to North Korea, the church is suffering. And around the world, Christ's church is suffering. And we need to pray that they could have a life free of persecution. It's interesting, they don't ask for that. They ask that God would give them boldness and strength. And we need to pray for that too. But we need to pray for our country, that we would live a peaceful within and a quiet life from without, that we wouldn't suffer persecution. And we could talk about some of the things that are afoot in Congress right now that could change all of that, but I won't do that. Uh, there are things going on that could change our quiet life right now. And then he says, godly and dignified in every way. Two interesting words again. Uh, godly is easier to understand. It, it speaks of, uh, of a life that is totally, completely living so as to please him. We get up in the morning and we say, Lord, I want to honor you with my life. That's a godly life. I think that's a way to describe it. I just want to honor you with my life, with everything I do today. But the word dignified is a little harder. I think that the old King James translated that word honesty there. And that doesn't capture it either. It, the idea is with a seriousness, with right living. 
So when people look at us, uh, some have translated dignified life. You may not like that word, but it's a good word. Is that when they look at us, they see a people who have a seriousness to their life, who have a soberness to their life. Now, I don't mean we have to be sour all the time. I, obviously, that's not the case. But there is purpose to our life. And they watch us and they see this about us that these people have something to live for. And, and they should be able to see that. The world should be able to see we have something to live for. And I, I think that's the idea, is that we have a dignified, right living. People can see that from the outside. And then notice in verse 4, he says it in verse 3, uh, this is good, that all these things, praying for all people and praying for kings. He said, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Then in verse 4, he's going to take an aside now. He says, God, our Savior, which immediately leads him to say, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What does God desire for mankind? What does God desire for our neighbor, uh, for our cousin, for our co-worker, he desires that they be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, right? We'll have to wonder about that. If prayer is hard, being concerned for the loss is equally hard. It's hard. We can get so engaged in our own life, in our own circumstances, that we forget that we're rubbing shoulders with people who need to be saved, who, whose future, whose eternity depends on their being saved. And we need to be reminded of that, that it's God's desire that, that all men would be saved. I need to be reminded of that. It's awkward and hard to talk to somebody, but it's not awkward and hard to pray for them. Let's start by praying for them. You know what, as I read through this passage, one of the things I came out with is that I used to have a list of people that I prayed for that were, did not know the Lord. And I happened to find that list recently, just this week, and I realized I haven't been praying for them. You know, it's hard for me to stand up here and say something. I can't urge you to something I'm not doing, right? How can I call you to something I'm not doing? I, I can't. So if I'm going to call you to pray for people who are lost, then what must I do? Pray for people who are lost. And, I, and I'm committed to renewing that list and spending time and before the Lord. And, you know, this isn't an all-day task, but I wonder what would happen if we spent five minutes, five minutes a day, what a tiny little part of the day, and if we began to pray for the lost, I wonder what would happen. We have 80 people in the church this morning. I have adults, maybe 50 or 45 or 50. And, and I wonder what would happen if 45 or 50 of us began to pray five minutes a day for somebody who needs the Lord. I wonder, I wonder what would happen. Remember that movie? Remember the Titans? exhorting him another 10 yards, another 10 yards, another 10 yards. Well, I think the Lord would exhort us this morning 
Come on, folks. Phil, come on, Phil. Pray for somebody. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your friends. Pray. And I think that's the heart of this text, is that God wants all men to be saved. He desires that they come into harmony and fellowship with him. And what he's left me with is a challenge, the exhortation to pray. And with you, pray. I won't ask you right now. If you, if you would do that, I might later. But we need to pray. Then, then this last section. Uh, I, I said the potential for prayer. And Steve put this on the screen. And I said, no one is going to know what I'm talking about there. Potential for prayer. What am I talking about? Well... I could have said possibility for prayer. But mankind is estranged from God. There is a barrier between God and man. Remember the book of Job? And you remember at one point, uh, Bildad, Job 8 and 9. Bildad's uh, listening to Job, listening to his arguments. And he says, Job, all you're getting is what you deserve. Job, you're guilty. You just need to repent. That's a summary. That's a little harsh, but that's what he said. And, and Job says to him, and the old, I, I always remember the old King James phrase. He says, Bildad, I have nobody that can plead my case to the, to the Lord. I have nobody. I have no daysman is the King James word. I have no daysman. There's no daysman. There's nobody between me and God. And the word is mediator. There's no mediator between me and God. And I can't get to him. I just can't get to him. And you just, when you read that, it breaks your heart. Because here's Job, who God's already said was, was the godliest man in the area, or the godliest man on earth. And, and so God's appraisal of him is all favorable. And he says in the middle of his trouble, I can't get to God. I can't get to him. And that's an emotional passage. And we don't want to take that out of it because there's a frustration there. And then, and then we find what's coming to us in the next verse. I, I wrote down um, Job's quote out of Job 9. It says, For he's not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we could come to trial together, there is no arbiter or no go-between, no mediator who might lay his, lay his hand on us both. Well, what a picture, right? Look at verse 6. Or verse 5, rather. Back up to verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Job, you've got a mediator, and it's Jesus Job, you've got someone that can get to the Father because he's of the same essence, has lived for all eternity in harmony with the Father. And Job, you've got somebody that can get to you because he came and took out all of the pains and infirmity that you have. Job, he knows how you live. He knows your questions. You have a mediator. There is one God, one God only, can only be one God. It wouldn't be God if there were more than one. Uh, Big G, there's just one God and one mediator between God and man. I go back to Carlton Person. What does he do with all of this 
and when he denies the need for salvation, when he denies the need for a mediator, what's he do with all of this? I, I, I don't know what he does. But I only know this. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. And so today, when, when the Lord extends salvation to mankind, and it's his desire that all men would be saved, he's doing it through the mediator, through the go-between, through the Lord Jesus. So what do I mean when I say the potential for prayer? Like Job, without Jesus, our prayers go about as high as the top of our head. But because of Jesus, they come right into the throne room. You know, if you want to study this through, the book of Hebrews is full of this. And, and I pulled some excerpts out of Hebrews, and, and uh, they are true to the word, but they're sections. Let me read it to you. It gives the explanation of Christ as the mediator. It says of Christ, he's the mediator of a new covenant or a new agreement. Christ entered... Not some holy place made with human hands, but into the presence of God the Father on our behalf to offer himself, his own blood to bear our sins. And now we come boldly to the throne of God through our mediator, Jesus Christ. And so the possibility, the potential for prayer is wrapped up in the Lord Jesus. You know, we we often pray... uh, in Jesus' name. I, I do that. Sometimes I open it, sometimes I close it. And what we have to be careful of is that that doesn't become a ritual where we just kind of close things out in, in, in Jesus' name. Because it's much more than that. This isn't a ritual. This embodies the potential for our prayer is in Jesus' merit, in the person of Jesus Christ. That makes sense? It's not just mouthing in Jesus' name. It's possible to have a prayer that is totally acceptable to God and maybe never mouth those words because it's on your heart. You're recognizing that, that you can pray because of Jesus. And it's possible that you do it at the front end. It's possible to do it on the rear end. Don't make it a formula. What the formula is that we come into the presence of the Father through Jesus Christ and no other way at all. Because there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so when we pray, when we come, as the writer of Hebrews says, uh, boldly to the throne of God through our mediator, the Lord Jesus, it isn't so important what word we say there, exactly how we phrase it. If it helps you to remember to finish your prayer in Jesus' name, then do it, right? If it helps you to do it at the front end of your prayer to remind you, then do it. If it helps you just to take a minute and collect your thoughts before you pray and acknowledge to the Lord, I'm coming to you in the name of my Savior, in the merit of my Savior, then do that. Let's not formulize it, right? And we we like formulas. You know, I want to do things, click, 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 this way. One, two, three, four. And that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about us coming through our potential for prayer, the possibility of our prayer is through Jesus Christ. Well, what do we do with this? What do we do with it? Hmm. 
I'll tell you what I have to do with it. I have no choice. Is that God has called me to pray for all men. Now, I don't know how many million men are on the earth today. I don't know. I can't pray for every man. <laughs> Neither can you. So there's something to that, you know, that we have to think through. But I can pray through my circle. And if we all pray through our circle, we'd touch the world. And I think that it would be good for us to take five people, five people, and pray five minutes a day for those five people. I don't think I'll ask for a show of hands, but before, between you and the Lord, think about that. Would the Lord have, would he exhort you, say, come on, another 10 yards, another 10, would he exhort you to pray for five people for five minutes a day? That isn't much. It isn't much. And maybe it's too little. Maybe it should be 30 people for 30 minutes. I don't know. But let's start with five people for five minutes. Let's start there and begin praying for people. And then as we pray, I, I, I see this as critical to us, folks, is that our prayers are possible because of Jesus but our prayers are also, they also come boldly to the throne of God because of Jesus. And that when, when we go to the Father, we're going in the merit of, of the Savior. Christ says, that's mine. That's my child. And we're going with all of his righteousness to our account. We're going into the Father's presence with boldness because of Jesus. And so... Let's, let's remember our mediator and remember why we can pray and how it is that we can come into his presence. Lastly, I would just say this, that God desires all men to be saved. I believe that. I believe it because it says it. God desires all men to be saved. I said last week the Apostle Paul was a very improbable one. But the Lord changed him, didn't he? And the ones who are most improbable, the Lord can change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, that as we come to you today, Heavenly Father, we come in the merit of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we can come boldly because of him, not because of us, not because of anything we've done, but because of him. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that we have access to you. That we are not like Job, who struggled to find someone who can touch us both. But we have a Savior, a mediator, who can touch us and can touch you. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you'd put upon our hearts people. People who need to know you. And as you've exhorted us to pray for all men, Lord, help us to pray for our rulers. And we do this morning. We pray for our president. God, I pray that Donald Trump's heart would be totally aligned with your heart. That he'd know with you and walk with you. And that his heart would be to serve you. And for our vice president, Pence. And Lord, we, we pray that their hearts would be soft toward you. 
and that you'd be able to break through. And then, Lord, I, I pray for those around me who are lost. Lots of names come to my mind. And God, help me to have your heart toward these people. I know how you feel toward them. Help me to feel the same. That you desire all men to be saved. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for condescending to reach down to our world. Because you loved us. Thank you, Lord. And we thank you. In that name above every name, the Lord Jesus. Amen.